Well, after a month's break, let's turn back to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Kind of good to be back to normal after the holidays, I think. Birthday parties are fun. But what makes or breaks your life is what happens in between those birthdays, isn't it? That's how I feel about Christ's birthday. Wonderful to celebrate Christmas. But our day-to-day, week-to-week, ongoing growth in knowing Jesus and walking in trusting him, trusting his grace. That's what makes a difference. Not a Christmas celebration. We're in John chapter 7. We're in the midst of this section. Just to give you a little review, Jesus has come back to the city of Jerusalem after being away for almost a year, perhaps a year, been ministering up north in Galilee where he grew up. But his return to Jerusalem is immediately surrounded by controversy because nobody forgets the last time he was in town. There he offended just about everybody, especially the leaders, when he healed a man on the Sabbath day. Well, we find him then in the temple courts during the Feast of Tabernacles, engaged in some rather intense teaching about who he is, that he's come from the Father, that he has the Father's authority to do the Father's will, not words that are going to endear him anymore to the leaders of Israel, to many of the people. And so those claims arouse even more opposition, which we'll see some today. But also, in the middle of that, some are beginning to believe. We're going to pick up with verse 28. Although our text this morning, just to see the context, well, our text this morning is verses 32 to 36. And just as kind of a note, I encourage you at the beginning of this new year to bring your Bible with you, to open it up, and to read it, and to leave it open, and to keep referring back to it, because our goal here is to help you to see and understand what your Bible says. Well, what I think about it means very little, unless you can see that that's what the Bible says, and you only see that as you follow along and try to understand what the words mean. Let me read from verse 28 down through 36. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own. But he who sent me is true, and you do not know him. But I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Then our text for today. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me. But you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. We'll end there. 
two truths that I want us to learn this morning from this passage, and we'll spend almost all of our time on the first one, and then the second one a little bit, though it's also quite important. First truth is this. No one can thwart Jesus' plan. No one can thwart Jesus' plan. You know, we have a certain taste for power confrontations, especially in sports, but in other parts of life, too. We like to see the best of the best going head-to-head, see who's going to win. We, we like that competition, muscle against muscle, steel against steel. We were set up for it this week, right? Finally, the National College Football Championship is going to be decided not by some speculative voting but we're going to have the best and the best muscle against muscle. They're going to fight it out on the field, and we're going to see who really is number one. So we're all set for the Fiesta Bowl, number one, Nebraska, number two, Florida. Power confrontation. Interesting to read the paper the day before the game and the day after the game. Great expectations, but in fact, it was decided, but it was no contest. What looked to be a battle to the finish was a walk in the park as Nebraska rolled over Florida. Well, our text this morning, we have kind of a power confrontation developing. Not a football game, but a much more serious game. A power confrontation. On the one side is all the power of the nation of Israel. You have the Pharisees here. Now, the Pharisees are the legal experts. They are the conservative theologians. These are the people who took the Bible so seriously that they could quote maybe whole books of the Bible verbatim. Great scholars. They have now formed an alliance with the chief priests. Now the chief priests were mostly the Sadducees who were the theological liberals of the day. They hated each other, Pharisees and the Sadducees. But they both hated Jesus even worse. So because of their common hatred to him, they formed this alliance. They worked together, and they convened here the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council, in order to act officially to, dis, to, dis, to uh, 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 dispatch the, the temple guard. That was the police force that was maintained by the Jewish community to maintain order in the Jewish community that functioned pretty much autonomously within the larger Roman Empire. Here we have this alliance of the conservatives and the liberals acting together officially, using all the police power at their disposal. The whole, here was represented the whole power of Israel, the political, the religious power of Israel, the legislative, the executive, the, the court, everything. That's one side. And then on the other side of this great ensuing power confrontation, we have uh, well, we have, well, we have Jesus <laughs> standing there in the middle of the crowd in the temple teaching. Well, maybe it's not going to be such a great uh, power confrontation at all. It looks like it's more of a mismatch than Nebraska and Florida, doesn't it? But before you jump to conclusions, remember what we said at the beginning. No one can thwart Jesus plan. You see, this alliance of Jewish officials, 
They have now decided that they have had enough of Jesus. He's done nothing but cause trouble. He has this dangerous teaching. This man is a problem. His time is up, they decide. Well, they've been plotting against him for a long time. But in verse 32, they begin to hear the things that they, their, their worst nightmare, the crowd beginning to whisper, well, when the Messiah comes, would he be doing something more than this? In other words, maybe this really is the Messiah. And that's enough. When they hear that, they call, they gather together the council and they dispatch the temple guards, go arrest him. Enough. His time is up. And here's Jesus standing in the temple courts. And Jesus says, uh, no, not yet. <laughs> I'll be with you just a while yet, thank you. That's kind of the force of verse 33, the beginning of verse 43. Actually, the translation is kind of a little sticky here. There's a word, therefore, that doesn't get translated in the New International Version. Therefore would show that Jesus is responding to this order to arrest. Here come the people to arrest him. And therefore, Jesus replies, basically replies, not so fast. I'm not ready yet. Literally, it says, therefore, Jesus said, yet a little time, I'm with you. He doesn't say, I'm only going to be here a little time instead of a long time. He says, no, I'm not ready to quit yet, yet a little time, I'm still here. Not so fast, Jesus says, I'm not ready. That's the same thing that happened back in verse 30 when the crowd, the hostile part of the crowd had tried to seize him and yet nobody laid a hand on him because it says because his time wasn't, hadn't come yet. Now you say, wait a minute, you can't do this. I mean, you can't just decide when they send the police to arrest you and say, uh, excuse me, I'm not ready yet, I've got some more to do, it's not time yet for you to arrest me. You can't just do that, can you? Try that sometime. No, you can't do that. Except that no one can thwart Jesus' plan. It's kind of a mystery how that all worked. Except we look down, look ahead a little bit, down to verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does. The guards declare. They didn't arrest him. Not yet. Which is exactly what Jesus said. Not yet. No one can thwart Jesus' plan. It doesn't matter that the whole official of Israel has decided it's time. His time is up. Jesus says, my time's not up. End of that discussion. Now make no mistake about their intentions when they sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. They had heard Jesus teaching. They had rejected what he said as dangerous. They had rejected him as a blasphemer, a dangerous man. And now they have decided, they have committed themselves that they will kill him. Now that was, uh, that was known to be being plotted way back in verse 25. It says that everybody knew that this was the one they were trying to kill. They were plotting to kill but now what has happened is that they have officially started down that road. They have sent the order to go and arrest Jesus. 
for that purpose. And they will continue to press this. As we study throughout the rest of John, we will see that they will not let this rest until Jesus is hanging on a cross. They are determined to destroy him. They are going to get rid of him. They are going to stop him. That's the plan. Now, Jesus is no fool. He knows their intentions. He knows their plans. He sees all that coming. But when Jesus looks at this whole scenario unfolding, and when Jesus looks ahead and sees his death coming, Jesus sees it quite differently than they do. He says in verse 33, a little while before I'm ready for you to arrest me, a little while, and then I will go to the one who sent me. You see, they see his death as their victory and his defeat. But he sees his death as the successful completion of his work and his promised return to his father right on schedule. And even when they finally hung him on the cross, oh, they thought they had now finished him. But they had not defeated him. They had only played into God's hands. Well, we read in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was, Jesus was handed over to them to be crucified, I quote, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And so far from it being the defeat of Jesus when he died on the cross, so far from that being their victory that ended his work, in fact, that's what accomplished his work. For we read in Hebrews chapter 2 that in bringing many sons to glory, it was, it was appropriate, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation fitting, uh, uh, perfect through suffering. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory, and he's doing that through his death. Hebrews 2 goes on to say, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. They thought that if they killed him it would defeat him. But he came to die to defeat death itself and, and Satan and hell and judgment and to remove from his people the fear, the terror of death. And so when he had accomplished his plan through his death and resurrection, he returned to his father, just like he said. A little while, then I'll return to my father. And when he did, he fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy recorded in Daniel 7. 13, from which we get his name, the Son of Man. There we read that one like the Son of Man approached the Father, the Ancient of Days, he's called there, and was led into his presence and was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, Jesus says, when, when I'm good and ready, you can arrest me. And yes, you can hang me on a cross, but when you do, you will only play into the master plan. For then I will finish what I came to do. 
redeem my people, begin my kingdom, and then I will know glory. They said, the time is up. Jesus said, nope, not yet. They said, we're going to kill him. Jesus said, no, I go to my father. My death will only complete my work. You can't thwart Jesus' pins. Well, they still didn't get the message. In verse 35, we see that they seem to think they're invincible, that no one can escape their plans. Let me read verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? They're amazed at him. He's going to go away. Where does he think he's going to go? He can't run. He can't. Does he think he's going to run from us? The grammar here has an emphasis on the word we. Where can he go that we cannot find him? Oh, yes, you see, the Jews were scattered around the world throughout the whole Roman Empire. But like any ethnic group that has the same religion that scatters out, they live in little pockets and little synagogues, and they all know each other. They say, does he think he can go out there somewhere in the Greek-speaking world and we're not going to find him? Well, we'll find him. Doesn't matter where he goes. He can go out and talk in Greek or something. We'll find him. We can run him down. There is no escape from us. Oh, but see, they didn't understand. You can't thwart Jesus' plan. What sounded so absurd to them? This statement of seems to be mocking ended up as an involuntary prophecy of what was about to take place for in the next couple of decades, three or four decades. This is what happened. As the Jews scattered throughout the world became the means by which the gospel of Jesus was preached to the whole world, not just to those Jews, but to the Gentiles around them too. A century ago, the great Bible scholar Frederick Godet pointed out that as the Apostle John wrote this account, he's writing in Greek to Greek-speaking people. And he seems to revel in reproducing verbatim this derisive comment by these leaders. Because John writing his account of Jesus to Greek-speaking people is living proof for the whole world to see that you can't Thwart Jesus' plan. You can mock it. You can come up with the most absurd statement in the world. And his plan is even more impressive. Great power confrontation is now seen to be no contest. Jesus sets the agenda. Jesus controls the events. Jesus works his plan. Jesus accomplishes his work. His enemies can take a stand against him and it can look like a... For a moment, it can look like they've won, but in the end, they've only played into his hands. They've only showed him to be more masterful than they ever dreamed. No one can thwart Jesus' plan. During Christmas, we learn from Isaiah 9 that Jesus, when he's born, is to be called, among other things, mighty God, or a God of a hero. You see what Isaiah's talking about? This Jesus is awesome. He's a delight. He seems to be so weak and vulnerable. Standing alone with all the forces of official Judaism coming against him. Going to the, to the cross, apparently defeated. 
And yet he leaves his enemies defeated. He leaves the world shaking its head. You cannot thwart his plan. This morning I tell you, there's nobody like him. He is the most wonderful, the most majestic, the most incomprehensible, the most awesome, beautiful person the world has ever known. And he's still doing his work. Right under the world's noses while they build political empires and financial fortunes, this Jesus is building a kingdom of men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and nation and language and people building this international kingdom of his disciples which the world takes very little note of but which already numbers in the million which will endure forever when the world is no more you can't thwart Jesus plan if you know him and are trusting him to save you rejoice in this confidence because Jesus specifically applies this truth to our salvation. He says, I know my own and nobody, nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Or as we read in Romans 8, that those whom God has chosen, he will save all the way to the end. In fact, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. See, he's still working out his plan. Just like he was back in John 7, his plans to save his people. And now, as then, nobody can thwart his plan. There's Twilight of Paris saying it, God is in control. We believe that his children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember. And we will not be shaken. There is no power above or beside him. We know. Oh, we know. God is in control. No one can thwart his plan. Great encouragement. Great encouragement when things look impossible. They're hanging us on a cross. Can't thwart his plans. Oh, but there's also a great exhortation here. And that's our second point. We need to trust Jesus while we may. Trust Jesus while you may. You know, there's some things that you just can't afford to be wrong about. You might pick the wrong teams to go to the Super Bowl, but, you know, really, what difference does it make? Life goes on. Next year, you might not even remember who it was. But if this afternoon you have pains in your chest and shortness of breath, whether you decide to seek help or whether you decide to sleep on it and see how you feel in the morning uh, might be a crucial decision. That's one you can't afford to be wrong about. Some things you just can't afford to be wrong about. Your relationship to Jesus is at the top of that urgent, vital interest list. So this text calls us to trust Jesus while we may. Let me explain. There are two little phrases we didn't talk about yet. 
Two things which Jesus said, which the Jews then repeated, they found in verse 34 and verse 36. In verse 34, Jesus goes on to say, I am with you for only a short time, and then, here's the first one, then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. You will look for me, and then you will not, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Then in verse 36, he says it again. Or they repeat it. What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Those two phrases. Both of these are statements of warning to us. Warning that the door of God's grace will one day be closed to them and to us. And on that day, it matters which side of the door you're on. This first phrase is Jesus' prediction concerning their national future, concerning Israel's national future. You will look for me, but you will not find me. The promise of a Messiah is a central tenet to the Jewish faith. But what is it that they seek? Well, they seek God's appointed promised Messiah, right? But Jesus is God's appointed Messiah. And they rejected him. So now, what is it they see? There's no other Messiah coming. That's the only one. And they don't want that one. So now what? Jesus says, you will seek me. You will seek your Messiah. But you won't find me. Because you've rejected me. Here Jesus describes the state of abandonment in which these people will soon find themselves. If they reject him, the only one that can lead them to God, the only Messiah that God has appointed, they will only know continuing and ever-disappointing expectation. For they've missed the time of God's visitation. He came and they missed it. And 2,000 years of Jewish history between then and now have borne out the agony of a nation who carefully, devoutly maintains its traditions but has rejected their Messiah and suffers the abandonment of God. Jesus' statement made even more explicit in chapter 8, verse 21, where he says, you will look for me and you will die in your sins. There isn't any other Messiah. You can look, you can wait, you won't find any. You'll die dissolute. Saw pictures again this week of Masada. You've probably heard about Masada. It's a plateau out in the desert where the last of the Jewish zealots fled when the Roman army rolled through Jerusalem, massacred people, burned the city to the ground, destroyed it in 70 AD. And there this little group held out on the top of this plateau that was inaccessible. For three years they held out against the Romans. They finally built a siege ramp. 
shovel full of dirt by shovel full all the way up there. When it was apparent that they were going to be overrun in the morning, the remaining community at Masada committed mass suicide, 900 and some of them. You'll seek me, but you won't find me. You'll die in your sin. Abandoned, hopeless, devout, maintaining our traditions, no Messiah. Second statement that Jesus makes is has to do with their individual, personal faith. Where I am, you cannot come. Again, Frederick Godet explains the expression where I am denoted the communion with the Father and the state of salvation which one enjoys in that communion. This is the blessed goal which they cannot reach after having rejected him, whereas he alone who could have led them there. If they allowed this time to pass by when they could have attached themselves to Jesus, it will all be over for them. Same thing Jesus said, chapter 14 of John. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He said, no one will come to the Father but by me. Where I am, you cannot come if you reject them. You see, the point of these two passages is that the day of God's grace doesn't just go on forever. These Jews had the ministry of Jesus for three years. They had the ministry of the apostles for a few years. And then in 70 AD, Jerusalem was totally destroyed by the Romans, burned to the ground, and that was the end of the day of opportunity for them as a nation. It doesn't go on forever. Now is a great day of opportunity for the rest of the world, for the Gentiles. But that too is going to come to an end. Jesus says it's going to be like a thief in the night with no warning. Boom, it's over. In fact, on a personal level, our personal day of opportunity might end this moment. Who has any guarantee of the next heartbeat? The next breath of air? But when we breathe our last, when our heart beats the last time, Our eternal fate is sealed. The day of God's grace is over. And apart from Jesus, we cannot go where he is. And so the Bible tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Now's the time of God's favor. Now's the day of salvation. Trust Jesus while you may. I read this week that the stock market had a record booming year last year. Wish somebody told me that this week last year, I'd have made a fortune. Be nice for you to see what's going to happen in advance, wouldn't it? 
here's a tip about the future. Something that we know for certain about the future. It's not about money, but it's more important than money. Here it is. No one can thwart Jesus' plan. Guarantee. Take it to the bank. This means that no matter how meager his resources might appear, no matter how tough the opposition may look, no matter how frail his people might look, no matter how bleak the circumstances might look, there is no question about the outcome. He will save his people exactly like he said. He will deliver them on the day that he comes to judge, and everyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved forever. Guaranteed. You cannot thwart Jesus' plan. Pretty safe place to be. That day of judgment and salvation rushes at us. Both the end of our lives and the end of the world we have no guarantee. We don't even have a hint hardly when it's coming. We only know that in a moment, in the blink of an eye, it's over. Our eternal fate will be sealed. So this morning, with a due sense of urgency, I say to you, trust Jesus while you may. You don't have forever. When he calls, when he moves your heart, when you say, I really ought to do that. You best do that. You say, I need to follow him. You'd best follow. For the day of his grace is coming to an end. And we could seek him all we want, but we wouldn't find him. We could long to be with God, but we would never be where he is. Trust Jesus while you may. Oh, Lord, thank you for the great promise of the victory of your work and your salvation, your kingdom. Lord, we just delight to know that no matter what it might look like at this moment, no matter how bad we might feel sometimes, no matter how much opposition we might run into, that you, your plan is not up for grabs, that you are working out every detail, and that you've even told us that you work it out through the suffering of your people, through our humility and meekness, not our power and togetherness. So Lord, we just delight in hearing again, hearing you face off against the leaders of the world and say, no, not yet. My plan is controlling things, not yours. And to reflect on the fact that even in your dying, Lord, you accomplished what you came to do. You were not defeated, you were the victor. God, give us such confidence. We live out our lives doing things we often don't understand. May we never flinch, Lord. May we fearlessly follow you, delighting in you all the time, knowing that you're in control and that no one stops you. And Father, I pray for any who might sit here and think, well, I wonder about this Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would grant faith to trust in faith to turn away from every other other hope and to come to you and to trust you and to call
call upon you to save. Lord, grant that to those who need to flee. To call upon you and to be saved. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to think about you and your, how wonderful you are. And your glory and your majesty again. Nurture our souls as we reflect on